Well, thank you all for, uh, for coming out. This is the final Conscious in the Cloud talk, and I thought tonight I would present on something that I've been working on for about three months now, uh, relating to my simulation Noble Ape and using Noble Ape to fight crime. When I started working on this chapter, I had a number of possibilities. Noble Ape historically uh, came from some work that I'd done writing antiviral software, which was used in the cognitive simulation. Uh, and I was pitched initially to write more on that, but I thought this was a more interesting topic. So the broad idea here is that you have an agent simulation with concepts of space and time, events, and natural language input and output, as well as this notion of an external narrative, which is what you say, and an internal narrative, which is what you think, and also the notion of uncertainty. So if we have these within a simulation, we can use the simulation as a unique mode of crime analysis. There were uh, four people and an event, which was the background to this, or at least moved my thinking in this direction. Uh, the first person who influenced me very heavily is a linguist by the name of Heron Stone. How many of you listen to the Stone Act podcast? Okay, hopefully one by the end. Heron has a number of ideas, but one of his primary ideas is that the internal narrative that we all have that kind of govern us and, you know, we have a perception that this is us is in fact not you. It's a function of a wide variety of things, but none of them are you. And once you discard this notion that the internal narrative is you, you have to start exploring what you actually means in this context. And there's a lot of additional uh, stuff that comes through it. So he refers to the internal narrative as your language machine. Uh, and hence your language machine is not you. He also has ideas associated with the way that we speak and the words that we use. And when I first met him, he introduced himself as someone who was looking to debug wild English. And within this, he has an idea of five stupidities of English that he is trying to kind of cure those that are interested in listening of. And uh, as noted, he and I talk on a roughly a weekly basis in the Stone Ape podcast, discussing some of these ideas, but also mapping these ideas in real-world circumstances and also with a certain amount of discussion associated with Noble Ape and other things. Heron talks about this notion of certainty, that within you know, our existence we have an addiction to certainty. So, for example, Malaysian Airlines flight disappears over the Pacific or wherever it disappeared. And we need to know exactly the circumstances by which that happened. We have things in our own life where we need to know certain things of certainty. And this addiction to certainty, uh, he talks against quite strongly. And he also has this notion that there are certain things that occur, but as humans, all we have is our stories. And our stories don't have a factual basis as if you would want to have a, you know, a factual basis perhaps in the law. I started talking with Heron in 2010. Uh, and he's been a heavy influence on the Noble Ape development from 2010. Bob Mottram started uh, developing with Noble Ape in about 2010, funnily enough. And uh, Bob Mottram historically was an industrial roboticist. He made robots for glass-blowing plants and factories in the central part of the UK. But he also was a strong advocate for hobbyist robotics. So he spent a good portion of his time uh, building robots, putting together... Uh, open source frameworks for people to download and use a variety of robotics. I'm not sure whether it's official, but according to photos I've seen, he had a robotic car, self-driving car over the Yorkshire Dales, these kind of things. So a bit of a kind of mad scientist. He now works at a company called CodeThink in Manchester uh, as a Linux kernel engineer. But he contributed 
a number of different simulations to NobleApe and added a lot of different source code to NobleApe. So aside from my long journey and a variety of other contributors, Bob Mottram is one of the heaviest contributors. One of the things he came to NobleApe with is ideas in social robotics, so the work of Cynthia Brazil at MIT, various other theorists in that area. So the notion that robots can have social characteristics attributed to them and their interaction can be based on those social characteristics. He also, and he and I came to this from similar backgrounds in terms of Core Wars and Tierra and these kind of simulations that have a simple uh, language core that basically acts on itself. Uh, and he developed this notion of a narrative engine or a narrative simulation within Noble Ape as well. It was influenced by Heron Stone's work here too. He spun those two ideas out into his own open source project called Monkey Mind, uh, which takes some of those ideas uh, from Noble Ape and abstracts them in such a way that can be, they can be used in more generic simulations. In the past six months or so, there haven't been a lot of contributions to Monkey Mind, uh, and I think it might be the case that Noble Ape actually um, develops those ideas independently from Monkey Mind and maybe gives contributions back. He also considered the noble apes as being physiological entities. So he had, for example, uh, heart rate simulation, blood pressure simulation, various vascular disease simulations, a wide variety of additional things to make uh, the noble apes more biological entities. And as I noted, he was heavily influenced by the work of Cynthia Brazil uh, and also Heron Stone. I think Goblin's an interesting character. I only met him once, but he had a substantial impact on me associated with um, this work in particular. Anthony founded a company called Kaggle, Kaggle.com, and it's a company that does data mining contests. So you take, for example, 100,000 people's genetic information and you look at their predisposition for cancer, and through a series of factors you can uh, make determinations which can then go back and look at either scientific data or a variety of other things to deem which of these data mining exercises, which of these data mining algorithms actually gets the best possible solution. Anthony's original funders were all kind of libertarian doctors who had a perspective that medical research was just too expensive. And you could shortcut medical research by putting a million dollars into one of these contests so some students in Kazakhstan could win the money when they had done the analysis of the data. And I was interested in this notion because my perspective, particularly with regards to science, a relatively idealistic perspective that will be somewhat drawn through um, in a slide following, was that this really wasn't science. It was kind of undercutting a lot of the operations of science, in particular that kind of eclectic knowledge that had been forgotten can be reintroduced oftentimes to provide solutions to certain things. It's very kind of, I don't know, um, kind of bottom dollar view of science. And as we were talking, um, and the reason I met Anthony actually is he was um, he was a college friend of my brother's. Um, so my brother was out in the Bay Area and he decided to meet up with his college buddy um, and I tagged along. But as I was talking with him, I realized that um, this analysis being used on science might actually be really interesting if it was applied to the legal system. Because in the legal system, you have a variety of overlapping laws, a variety of historical baggage that could be simplified given adequate simulation methods. Uh, and that was certainly a strong motivator uh, in some of this work. I was able to develop Noble Ape very remote from the traditional evolutionary biology, academic artificial life communities. And that actually enabled me to develop it in a variety of directions 
I think the initial difficulty was when I first started developing Noble Ape, in fact, for about the first decade, I started in 1996. Artificial life, as it was termed then, didn't apply to what I was doing with Noble Ape. And over about a decade of work, slowly artificial life moved into this area. So I thought, after, what, 16-odd years, going to the Artificial Life 13 conference at Michigan State University would give me an opportunity to present Noble Ape to a variety of scientists and also talk with uh, students and independent researchers associated with what I did with Noble Ape, and maybe it was applicable to what they were doing um, in a variety of different uh, scientific biological endeavours. And I also spent a week at Michigan State University following to meet there. They have uh, Beacon, which is an evolutionary biology group that also has a wide variety of um, artificial life kind of um, evolutionary biology folks there as well. And coming away from that, and thankfully a lot of the scientists that were fascinated by Noble Ape I was able to record, so I was able to capture a lot of that audio. But the problem that they seemed to note was that the complexity which is implicit in Noble Ape, the complexity even of simple things like the land simulation, the fact that there's a fractal land generated, the fact that there's water and tides and weather, all these kind of things which are really, you would imagine, critical for evolutionary biology because you're creating environments where you can actually have some degree of evolution uh, given a variety of parameters, actually was appeared to be too problematic for even the scientists that were exploring the kind of boundaries of complexity for artificial life. I also came away with a few scientists that were actually quite dismissive. Of those who were dismissive were genuinely ignorant of the history of Noble Ape, but they made the point that, you know, this isn't science what you're doing here. You can come and you can talk to us, but from our perspective, what you're doing is more like a game. And I said, well, I'm not really interested in science. I'm more interested in philosophical satire and kind of moved on from that experience. And it made me realize that the complexity that I'd been diving into, a lot of the stuff that I really enjoyed about Noble Ape, didn't really have a footing in contemporary science. And also the areas that I saw seemed to be relatively well-defined and defended silos, which was the idea that I wanted to move away from when I started developing Noble Ape. So based on that experience, I decided that I needed to really rethink my approach with Noble Ape. And one of the things that I considered, because I had done academic publication up until then, I published in half a dozen or so peer-reviewed publications, so I probably should stop academic publishing and just focus on what I enjoyed with Noble Ape. I started interacting with Liz Swan um, through the Biota Live, Biota Podcasts. Have any of you heard of Biota Live or the Biota Podcast? At least one. That's always good. And um, she was a philosopher. She's now a deinstitutionalized academic. She's left uh, institutional academia, at least. But she also was the editor on a couple, at least, of the books that I academically published in, including The Origin of Mind. And through talking with Liz through the Biota Live recordings, I realized that she was someone who was sufficiently dynamic and also interested in the stuff that I was talking about, that irrespective of what I would see with, you know, academics, I could reconvene with Liz. And what I did was contact her towards the end of last year, and I resumed recording uh, podcasts with her. At the time I got in contact with her, she said, I'm editing a book on computer forensics. And is there anything associated with Noble Ape that you'd be interested in doing, like, for example, the early computer virus stuff? And I thought to myself, well, actually, there's probably something slightly more interesting that I can do here. So I signed up for yet another academic publication. I have been through about seven murders associated with the analysis here, but I'm going to use this murder 
uh, as an example this evening for one reason in particular. It's slightly less technically interesting than most of them, but I thought I was relatively limited in time here. Christian was killed by Pedro. You know, it's unquestionable. Basically, Pedro did a variety of things. Uh, it occurred in 2012 in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, Pedro and Christian were two high school friends. Uh, they both went their separate ways to go to college. Uh, they met in a car park. Uh, both men entered the vehicle, uh, which was Pedro's vehicle, and only one left the vehicle after a long drive. It involved multiple locations and multiple events, which are interesting in the simulation in and of itself. But the case can be distilled as follows. Pedro had a girlfriend who then left him when she went to college, and Christian started dating her. There's extensive camera footage associated with um, the events described on the previous slide, but when Christian told his girlfriend that he was going to meet Pedro, as soon as Christian was no longer contactable for, by phone, the ex-girlfriend of Pedro, Christian's girlfriend, went to the police and insisted that Pedro come with her. And in the initial interview that Pedro had with the police, he told a number of different stories. So it was relatively clear that he at least had some altercation. He admitted actually to having an altercation uh, with Christian. And they found subsequent evidence like Christian's blood in Pedro's car. So it was pretty clear something had happened. It was pretty clear uh, that Christian was dead. But the interesting question in this trial was associated with uh, premeditation. Was this just a fight that got out of control that ended up with one man being murdered? Or was this something that had taken a long period of time and evolved uh, in Pedro's mind? And in this case, Pedro kept extensive journals. So his writing was actually used heavily in the trial to show that he had premeditated the crime. In his journals, he wrote, no one will stop me. I'll go from Miami, where he was in university, to Gainesville, and I will get her back. In another section of his journals, he wrote, how do I feel? I feel as if someone stabbed me in the chest and was sorry all throughout as they just pressed deeper. They left me to die with the look of remorse in letting me die. I then fell to the ground bleeding with two options. Bleed out and die, the easy way out, or cover the wound and go on and win her back. And in terms of the discussion with internal narrative in Noble Ape, here you have someone who is accused of a very serious crime starting to provide internal narrative. He also wrote, maybe this is silly, but I want to write down something. To whomever it may concern, please help me in achieving my goals to reach and accomplish them. Direct me to a path to win the girl who stole my heart and ran out. Make it so I can see the light on the road. I want her back. Please, I'll give anything. I wish, I wish, I wish. Maybe this will work. More than likely, I'm a hopeless moron. In his journals, he never talked explicitly about killing the other man. However, he wrote a lot of stuff like this, which can show a strong motivation in particular that the crime was premeditated. Some history on Noble Ape. I started developing Noble Ape in 1996, but I had a long history of developing Noble Ape prior to then. I was 19 at the time. I was in university. I was studying physics and philosophy. But prior to Noble Ape, I had worked on a variety of games and also antiviral software. And through writing antiviral software, I had a keen sense of holistic or heuristic, more importantly, virus analysis that you could actually see or make predictive determinations on how viruses move through computer systems. And this would actually aid 
either searching for viruses as they move through, particularly early strains of polymorphic viruses where you couldn't do the usual kind of byte code analysis. And from this suite of software development, I had a wide variety of technologies. But as I was studying philosophy at the time, I was in a very kind of dismissive uh, university associated with the potential of computer cognition and all these kinds of things. So I had a strong, I was in second year, uh, and I had an honest level student who I'd known for a number of years who said to me, computers will never be able to simulate consciousness. I thought that was a great dare. So from there, I started developing Nobelape. Nobelape initially were two different kinds of simulations. There was an island environment simulation, uh, which had a biological simulation that went over the top of that, um, just to create a rich environment where there were no unique points within the simulation. And it was important that there were no unique points within the simulation because there were also these noble ape entities that wandered over the island and picked up information. And if there had been non-unique points, some of the other approximations that are used in the simulation would be problematic. So I had a very rich biological simulation um, based on quantum mechanics, and underneath that I had the noble apes. And the initial cognitive simulation was very simple. It was based on two competing ideas, a notion of fear, which was a reactive fear. So, you know, if, it, if the noble ape sensed movement or things like that, they would react accordingly, but also associated with desire. And desire here was almost a concept of future, but more was a concept of, um, for example, if you walk the same paths continuously, the distances will seem shorter, kind of familiarity, and this created... Uh, almost a kind of, you know, ease of movement that was built into the desire in Noble Ape. At the time, well, historians may think differently, but at the time, from my perspective at least, there was no such thing as open source. So I just released the source code freely. It didn't have an open source license. It was just distributed accordingly. By 2000, open source was a thing, and I realized that I could get a lot of benefit by making what had previously been freely available source code into open source. I picked the easiest possible license, I also completely rewrote the simulation at the time based on a, you know, a variety of programming methodologies that I thought would make it easier for people to pick it up. Very simple things. The original simulation had been written in 16-bit, and I moved it to the amazing world of 32-bits. I also introduced the weather simulation, and the weather simulation uh, creates a variety of factors as well. The noble apes can get wet, there is wind, there's things that interact with the noble apes in addition to that. Importantly for a, a following slide, I also adopted the Carbon Framework, which was uh, new on the Mac at the time, and I spent a lot of time actually working to get that to work. Uh, I also had a planetary version where the Nobelite simulation, as it was confined to the island, was also spread across a planet. Uh, and really the planetary simulation folded into the later version of Nobelite. In 2003, um, I was based in the UK at the time, I was contacted by a couple of Apple engineers uh, that were amazed at the fact that Noble Ape would compile on all the predominant compilers at the time, which was a rarity. Also, it had Carbon, which few folk, I mean, not even Adobe had adopted Carbon by that stage, so few folk had actually adopted it. And these two engineers um, basically championed it at Apple. Um, I, my job here is working on Apple TV, amongst other things, and the primary engineer that I work with at Apple, 10 years ago, when he started at Apple, his first job was working on Noble Ape. So it propagated within Apple very quickly, and there are a number of engineers that have since left Apple 
uh, that Noble Ape had an impact on. They've gone to work at Google and a variety of other places in the Valley. But it was an interesting time just because I had a company like Apple showing it to third-party developers. In fact, a number of the folk I work with uh, touched Noble Ape at some stage uh, through that. Apple moved its in architecture from the G4, G5 processors to Intel, and Intel picked it up in 2005. There was a team of about 20 engineers that, again, used Noble Ape as a kind of gating for new engineers coming in. I met a bunch of them in 2010, and like I say, there was a group of about 20 then who'd gone through that. Apple initially, and Intel carried this on, wanted to move Noble Ape to uh, kind of multi-core vector processing models just to show the power that was coming out through these technologies. There was an idea that um, one of the Intel engineers passed on to me, which he tried to adopt through just the brain, the cognitive simulation, where you took the individual processing uh, atoms and you kind of atomized the processing accordingly. And that was seen as being a big boost to processing. And it was something that I kind of took away and thought about. I also moved to a full-color interface uh, and created a new 3D environment through this time. 2010 through to 2013, Bob Bottram got involved, obviously, the social simulation, physiological simulation that I've already talked about. Uh, he added this notion of episodic events, which is certainly very strong uh, in the crime-fighting um, writing. And also, he, within the narrative engine, he started off initially having just an external and an internal narrative. So each ape would have something that they thought about and something that they said externally, and then partway through that work, he started introducing the ideas of actors within the internal simulation. So the Noble Ape was an actor within its own internal simulation, but then there were potentially six other actors that could be selected at random or for a variety of things. You had circumstances in some cases where you had almost like after two or three generations, there would still be a Noble Ape that had passed that was still an internal actor. And that was almost like a deity, basically, that continued to revolve around either extremely negative or extremely positive things. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting work in there that my hope at MSU, or my time at MSU, was that they would take some interest. They did give me some pointers on that, but nothing's really been pursued. To my knowledge, this level of detail, particularly associated with narrative uh, simulation and the linking with episodic events and the other simulations. The early cognitive simulation is still in Noble Ape and still contributive in this. I've looked for other simulations that do things like this, uh, and I haven't found any to date. Avida is probably the largest other simulation, and still it doesn't have the combinations that Noble Ape has. So if you know of any others, um, by all means, let me know. So last year, finally, I cranked the notion of atomic processing, and it released a huge amount of speed. It's hard to imagine because it's a nonlinear speed increase. By dividing the Noble Apes, and I now know part of that is uh, reactive programming and a variety of other methodologies that are also um, heavily evangelized here at Netflix. Uh, but through that, I was able to get a far greater speed improvement than the core increase in cores. So that's something that I've continued with Noble Ape. Um, and no doubt will assist with this uh, development going forwards. I was also interested, and funnily enough, this is how Conscious in the Cloud came about, at the notion that you could take some of the ideas in Noble Ape and uh, move them to the cloud, particularly a lot of the heavy cognitive processing, and move that to the cloud, distribute that, get a lot of the stuff associated with uh, reactive programming, which already exists in simulation in a local state, but move it to a distributed environment. Uh, and that led into some thinking and, and some initial developments associated with a kind of cloud-based Noble Ape. There have been, at various times, including when I first started at Netflix, uh, Java versions of certain aspects of Noble Ape. 
Uh, and I think that technology has potential. Um, it's certainly something that exists. And if folks who are listening in or are here are interested, I can talk more about that. One of the interesting things that came through this, which is a, a kind of ongoing discussion really through Bob Mottram's time working on the simulation and also past Bob Mottram's time, is the notion of using natural language for noble ape. So as the noble apes have a narrative, part of that is also having a narrative that humans can interact with, both in terms of reading, but also in terms of potentially programming noble ape through a natural language. And we'll explore that a little bit more associated with, uh, with the murder crime. Another thing that has happened in 2014, and I wrote about this actually in a decade before, in 2004, uh, in IEEE Computer Graphics and Applications, is the notion of how you develop a simulation like Noble Ape as an individual developer. How you divide your time, how you find people of interest, uh, but mainly how you kind of spread this development and get to certain goals in extended timeframes. Um, and certainly when I started Noble Ape, I had a thought that this would be maybe a 25-year project with a number of goals along the way. Some of those goals have come sooner, some of those goals have been uh, pushed out. Uh, but certainly I've been thinking about that and actually not necessarily scheduling these things in the future, but just looking at how these things fit together and developing accordingly through that. So I demonstrated this early on at one of the Conscious in the Clouds, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about the event output in Noble Ape. What you have here, uh, the double-barrel names are the Noble Apes, basically. They have um, English intelligible double-barreled names. They have double-barreled names because they're Noble Apes. And through this, you have a notion of events which occurred. These are fundamentally verbs uh, in Noble Ape, and also when they occurred. And as time progresses and you went back to query the Noble Ape, the noble ape would have some notion of time within certainly minutes or days or these kind of things, but there's inherent vagueness in the time component of noble ape. These things also occur at points in space as well. But here you have just raw output of like transitioning through certain events. You have certain other events, you have people chatting and mating and eating, but these are the kind of events, these are the kind of verbs that are within noble ape. When you want to get uh, information about the simulation that shows the eight brain cycles per second, there are kind of reduction statistics that you get out of this. This is a very small uh, simulation that I created, basically, to get the events that we saw earlier. So really tight interactions, which means in a kind of smaller area, um, you'll have more chance of noble apes interacting. Then you have the eight brain cycles per second, which still is a maintained metric. If you take just the social events you start to get something which you could construct more in the view of a narrative. So here again, you have the same group of noble apes, but you're only stripping out the social events. And these, again, are at very distinct times. This actually represents, um, it's about 9.30 a.m. Um, 31 is actually the date, so it's not a date and second. It's, uh, it's not a, a time and second. It's a minutes and date um, syntax here. Uh, but here you have an example of just the interactions. There are longer-term uh, interactions. So, for example, after a noble ape has mated or even formed a connection with another noble ape, they search for them uh, in certain circumstances, and this is described in the narrative. But again, relatively simple verbs. So here are the groups. Here are the verbs of noble ape so far. And the notion of by here or ED just indicates that the action has been done to the noble ape. 
In order to move no blame to what I'm talking about here in the uh, crime fighting analysis, my initial goal was to add roughly 300 verbs to no blame and also uh, kind of encapsulate the past, present and future events uh, within no blame. Also, if you see here, these are very defined times. As time progresses, the way in which time is described becomes vaguer and vaguer in the noble apes view. Sometimes the noble apes can group the times associated with, you know, um, every morning I go and, uh, where is it? Every morning I go and eat vegetation, for example. I mean, there are these kind of things where they become familiar with certain events. But the notion of vagueness within that uh, is really critical. And it's also very useful when you start looking at actual events and the way people describe actual events. Again, the importance of natural language, both into the simulation uh, and also out of the simulation. And here, when we're talking about into the simulation, it's the notion that you can actually kind of programmatically, you know, type events as they occur uh, and then have the noble apes actively run them and potentially also show you gaps in the narrative and also show you contradictions within the narrative because there are certain things as events occur um, the problematic, but also that the simulation will provide output in natural language. So rather than this, and there is actually a slightly better narrative engine, this was just the way that I could group a series of the apes together, you have a, a sentence structure uh, which explains these kind of things and also explores notions of things like searching for mates and also um, you know deeper kind of secondary and tertiary uh, interactions based on that. So in terms of the verbs, thankfully, someone's already done some work for me. And uh, this is a list of uh, 331 verbs that I plan on putting in Noble Ape. And in putting these in Noble Ape, you need to have corresponding events that are within the simulation, but also you need to have interactions based on these verbs as well. Um, so this is the next step, but I thought I'd show at least that the, the verbs are out there that can be added. So if we look back at the narrative of Pedro Bravo, we have a notion of tense in what he is writing. And unfortunately, in this case, no one did stop him. And unfortunately, in this case, he did go from Miami to Gainesville. He didn't now have a get her back. But within this, you can find a narrative structure which can then be programmed within uh, Noble Ape. And you can start testing these, particularly when you have multiple narratives. And we'll get into that in a, in a minute. The second quote is more interesting because if this was just typed into a simulation like Noble Ape, it would cause a variety of problems. The, the sentence structure is just a little bit too complicated, but it doesn't have to be altered much in order to move it into a format uh, that a simulation like Noble Ape could easily understand. And here what you're talking about is actually a simulated actor. This is, he says he's feeling as if this individual has stabbed him in the chest, but you can actually run that in Noble Ape as an internal narrative simulation. So you then have the motivations based on this, and you have a wide variety of effects that come from that. Uh, and similarly, so it goes on here. There are various uh, emotive things through this, that basically the simulated individual is sorry as they do the injury, uh, but also these kind of events, which can be actively described in uh, the Noble Ape simulation and also um, provide... Um, descriptions back. So one of the interesting principles, particularly when you start to look at murder crimes and murder crimes with a number of participants, is the notion of surety and probability. While someone can describe through a narrative something which is either very detail-intensive or detail-light, 
the interactions with events in this narrative are, are very important. And part of the concept of noble ape is the idea that you can calculate after the fact relative probability associated with events. So already within noble ape, particularly in the narratives, you can go back and start looking at apes that are talked about a lot and how the reaction of these apes within what they're being talked about relate to other apes. You can create a social graph independent of the actual conversations, which enable you to see which apes are being talked about and through very simple analysis of that data, also why they're being talked about. I may have used this example previously in Conscious in the Cloud, um, so if I get glazed over eyes, I'll, I'll know accordingly. But part of the simulation is the notion of parents, and I'm pretty sure I've given this example previously, but I'll give it again. When a noble ape is born, the interaction with entities around them give them a sense of who their parents are. There are circumstances where parents will die and other apes will adopt the children uh, and these kind of things. So the notion of parent is not necessarily a genetic notion, but it's a notion of nurture and events that occur um, around the ape. And through this, they kind of determine roughly who in their social structure are a variety of family members that are kind of abstractly added on after the fact. So within that, you also have siblings, you also have grandparents potentially, but these things are developed dynamically based on social interactions. Through uh, the narrative engine, part of the narrative which is really important is this notion of a changing narrative. So, for example, you have a circumstance where through just talking, the narrative can mutate. And what happens through that is almost like there's rumor or, you know, things become more grandiose after retelling multiple times. You have all these kind of strange effects just through adding this mutation. And one of the effects that we noticed was very powerful was the changing of parents in a narrative. So, for example, if an ape knows or thinks that someone is their mother or father, and then through a changing narrative out in the community, that is changed. That gives a very high uh, marker in this epic equation over the description. Within that, you would have changes of relative probability that could be tracked through this method. And what you would see is the surety that had previously been given to a parent has, has been removed, and the probability of that ape actually being the parent of the child changes, and that propagates through just general narrative. Through this, there's the notion that every event within the simulation has a relative probability associated with it. That's not to say that the events didn't occur within the simulation. That is, after time, after it's been talked about as a community, the nature of the event changes and it becomes a probability. As I noted, this is per agent, per event. So you can have some circumstances as you calculate it where an agent has a relationship to an event that another agent, another noble ape, has a relationship to what they think of as the same event, but the probability changes as it's talked about. In addition to this, there is the potential for probability to be ascribed to internal actors as well, because internal actors are first-class citizens within noble ape. They don't exist as external entities, but in terms of their ability to perturb or change uh, a noble ape's thought and communication associated with other noble apes. I mean, this is how you have the ability to have this kind of false parent injection. And the other important thing with probability within noble ape is it changes over time. So if an event occurred 20 years ago, before the lifetime of a majority of the noble apes, but it's still an important event that's talked about, this probability and actually a whole nature of the event changes over time as it's talked about and as it exists independent of an actual event. So within all of this, 
there's an underlying question of what happens to surety. And I think that's really fascinating within this context because it gives you a means of exploring what historically certainly, and when you talk about these murder crimes, you're talking about evidence. You're talking about things that are seen as very much matters of fact by certain participants. However, evidence can be placed, evidence can be tampered with, evidence can be false, evidence has an existence almost like an entity in these circumstances. And I think this kind of analysis, in particular this kind of programmatic analysis when it's run in a simulation, uh, gives strong critiques to even, you know, even evidence as it would be presented in a, in a murder trial. So, what about the law? Well, when I started this, I had some predispositions associated with what the law was and what the law could be used in the context of this kind of simulation. But what fascinated me through working on this, in particular exploring potential programmatic interpretations, that programmatic actually writing the law uh, as an interpretable program, uh, was that the law is, as it is written at least, based in language more than it is based in specific events. And the analysis of the law is a linguistic analysis. It's not an analysis based on events, particularly as these things go to trial and as these things are actually played out between, um, you know, the, the participants uh, in the trial. And within this, although it's not explicitly talked about, well, there is the notion of the reasonable doubt and these kind of concepts, there is an implicit understanding of probability. When I came to start thinking about using Obelape in this way, part of that was how was this even applicable? Wasn't this just the same problem that I was getting into with the scientists? I was doing my own thing, science was going in some particular direction, or at least this group of scientists were. What can Nobelab actually be useful for in this case? And I looked at this both in terms of the traditional prosecution case where you have a large number of narratives. You also, and this, the notion of using Nobelab in this context is not to undermine basically what humans already do. It's to actually explore some of the subtleties that humans quickly miss. And even well-skilled humans within this area can miss a lot of the subtlety, particularly the linguistic subtlety. What you find in these kind of trials is typically it needs to be very strong. So, for example, Pedro Bravo used the past tense when he talked to the police associated with Christian, even though no one knew actually what happened to Christian at that time. So you have these kind of things which are pretty blatantly obvious. But then also you have a lot of subtlety of language. And particularly when defendants or witnesses are making things up, Subtle things can be lost in the language that I think certainly this kind of analysis would uh, present very easily. And similarly, this idea could be used by the defence. Now, in this case, Pedro met with the police without a lawyer and basically spoke accordingly. But if you were defending someone, you could use this kind of simulation as a means of analysing the testimonies that existed to date and certainly to defend one's client through this process uh, in ways that haven't been dynamically explored previously, and also ways which are um, probably almost sublinguistic in terms of the level of analysis. What I've done through writing this chapter, and I'm still in the process of writing it, is look at a series of prior cases dating back to the 1890s and actually explore the language that is used within these cases as could, as could be and can be analysed by Noble Ape. And it's certainly informed a lot of my thinking here because I think it provides a level of analysis or at least a level of surety analysis that can expose areas where maybe through the, you know, the, the power of the prosecution or the defense, uh, in terms of their legal presentations, these subtleties are, are lost, uh, but still exist in this analysis 
associated with, in one sense, kind of programmatic language analysis, but also the idea that there are actually underlying simulated actors um, that participate in these events. So through this, and certainly as I analysed a lot of historical cases, a lot of historical trials, I started to appreciate that what I was constructing here was actually a probabilistic data set. And what occurred within a trial was a, a simplified random walk, um, typically by two or more parties, through this data set. What interests me as well is that very little of the data set was actually captured in the trial process. So what you could get just through looking at um, on one side, this kind of narrative analysis, but also looking at the underlying agent actors within it, created a far richer data set than was ever actually explored at trial. And oftentimes things were completely missed, um, particularly associated with uh, spatial uh, and temporal issues. Most of the time, in murder cases which are pretty uncontestable, there's a deluge of evidence. And really, in the uh, Pedro Bravo case, there's a deluge of evidence. I think it's pretty clear... Bravo admitted to doing the crime, which is the details associated with which was the problem. Some of the cases I've looked at are considerably more detailed, um, and I thought about presenting two additional cases here, um, but just within the time and the analysis, I thought it was probably best just to stick with this easy one. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating, and my aim is um, to continue this work and to continue to publish the analysis accordingly. So, how do I change Noblate in order to make it more applicable to this. The verbs are a relative triviality. The subtlety within language that I haven't talked about here, obviously there are cases where you know, verbs have a, a variety of meanings, nouns can have varied meanings as well. There's a lot more exploration associated with language that can be done here. I'll talk a little bit in a, about the tool uh, in a minute that explains a little bit more of that. The notions of space and time, even within vagueness and oblate, need to change a little bit more, particularly in the notion of the spread of space and time. When I, I started doing, I started doing this work prior to actually uh, picking this um, particular idea up. Because there are regions in the noble ape simulation where the noble apes congregate anyway. And the notion of having a region where it's described as a beach or a cliff face or a burial ground or all these kind of concepts where you have an area which is described linguistically as a simple thing. Another thing that interests me through noble ape is the notion that noble apes actually create their own language through this as well. So there's a slightly abstracted version of noble ape where the noble apes actually have regional languages, for want of a better term. They construct ideas and areas and places where they have unique names within small communities or tribes. And when they go and meet other tribes, you have a confusion that is associated. And then progressively, either the tribes are overcome or the language is modified in such a way that they can agree that that is called, you know, Cragley Cliff and that is called, um, you know, Palm Point and all these kind of things. Um, although it's more complicated than that because even the notions of cliff and palms and points and beaches and all this kind of stuff have to be agreed upon through that. But that is something also uh, in Noble Ape, but this is something that um, is not necessarily applicable to this, but it's certainly something that I've explored. The notion of future tense and also um, probability associated with future tense is something that I've been developing in Noble Ape since prior to 2000. But actually solidifying that, um, if you remember from my description, the notion of desires within the simulation kind of indicate a future tense, but not a hard-formed future tense, which is really needed for um, natural language to explain, um, you know, that you're going to be doing something in the future or an agent is going to be doing something in the future. The exploration of nat natural language is also relatively early. 
but it's sufficiently mature that some of these ideas can be expanded. So you can add more verbs, for example, uh, and see a, a richness that comes through that. But one of the things that really interested me and something that I was already in the process at least of fleshing out, if not actually developing, was the notion that there could be a natural language conversion tool um, that was used within the simulation. If you're familiar with the programming environments and IDEs, you have color matching that goes as you program, basically. And that's a great assistive thing to actually tell you, um, you know, if you're allowed to use certain variables, names as variable names. And something that occurred to me here was, um, and even prior to starting this um, crime-fighting noble ape stuff, was this notion that if you gave color coding associated with words within natural language, you could actually uh, assist, particularly if this was... Um, you know, typed in through, um, you know, the murder trial analysis, that you could start seeing uh, who within this were simulated agents, what were specifically verbs, what were areas, and you could construct a means of creating positive feedback uh, when uh, language was actually mapping onto the underlying natural language. So it's kind of assistive natural language through that. And from these things as well, you can then use um, standard kind of programming in natural language. So you can start asking the simulation uh, questions in, in natural language forms. Here, you know, what is the probability that Pedro will go to Miami in the future uh, and these kind of things. Where it gets particularly interesting is when you have uh, potentially two or more murderers in these cases. And what you have leading into this is um, narratives of multiple participants. And this basically creates not necessarily a program, but more of a kind of framework that, a, that the simulation can be run against where um, it looks through potentially thousands, potentially tens of thousands of random walks hinging on specific events and specific uh, narrative that the agents have described individually. And this, I think, is particularly powerful because this is basically the culmination of um, these ideas in looking at... Um, witness testimony, uh, criminal testimony, and also looking at the holes in these things because you can, through thousands of random walks through these events, you can start to construct probabilities and also justifiable probabilities um, that can be useful uh, in criminal cases. I haven't talked about that through this. There's a lot of additional writing that I did uh, on this specifically, but it's quite dense. So in terms of where we go from here, I haven't actually done a formal announcement of this work. I've talked about it periodically, both with my uh, discussions with Heron Stone, uh, which are the Stone Ape podcast, uh, and also my talks with Liz Swan. Uh, Liz is the editor of the book that this will be a chapter in, um, in the Biota podcast feed. Liz and I are going to evolve our podcast, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a few slides, but these are the locations. Also, the Noble Ape simulation and also the GitHub repository where these changes will go in uh, is also a place to track some of the early changes there. Any questions? Just to kind of get an idea of what you're talking about when you're talking about running the random walks, so just can you get a feel of how you're using the simulator to do the crime analysis? Are you taking these narratives that you have from the journal and then the events that you have from the evidence, plugging those in as fixed points, and then running the simulation multiple times with the fixed points to gain the probabilities that these things connect, or I'm not quite understanding so, what the... So let's the return to this are. idea that everything has a probability associated with it. Right. So even the narrative associated with these events has a probability associated with it, and it's a probability that's relative to the actor, where the internal narrative is not applicable. 
So what you have here is a series of statements, and the actor themselves can contradict their narrative as well. So these, the way in which this is constructed is, yes, you have a simulation that's run, you have a series of events. Now, some of these events may be impossible in the path that the simulation takes. So you have two modes of analysis here, one that says these events could happen, and here's the probability that they happened in a certain number of these random walks, and also these probably these events happen with a certain consistency where they can move towards being described potentially as facts or at least with a high probability. So you need to have the the first thing that starts is the agents. Then you have the what they say almost as hints along the way, which kind of gray which become more probable more probabilistic or less probabilistic based on a variety of random walks. But you need thousands of these random walks in order to start actually interpreting whether these narrative events should be trusted or distrusted, and in particular associated with contradictions. So it, does that answer your question? Well, maybe not quite, because I'm trying to get the difference between the idea of if you're running a noble ape simulation, basically you're creating, seeding the system, and then you mm -hmm. just let them do whatever they want to do. Yeah. That's not what you're trying to achieve with no. a crime simulation. You're actually you're putting a stake in the ground at certain points, or you're putting certain stakes in the ground, and then that's what I'm trying to understand is how well, okay, are you let, fixing let's, those let's points? Take your, let's take your stake metaphor one step further. You have stakes in the ground, and then you have marbles rolling, and whether they hit the stakes or not through these walks is the important thing. Right. So you're trying to govern them. Potentially, you want to give a slightly more certainty to certain components of this, but when you have narratives that are completely contradictory, that's where it gets interesting. And I'll step into that for a minute. When you have narratives that are completely contradictory, it doesn't mean that, that hasn't occurred. And part of this notion of surety is actually associated with the perception of two parties. You might have had an experience, I mean, most people have, where you'll have a conversation with someone, you'll walk away from that conversation thinking they understood what I said, and they have a completely different understanding of the conversation. So that needs to be just as much allowed as this notion of staking the ground facts here. And that's where it actually gets very interesting. Because based on a variety of circumstances, including interaction misunderstanding, you can have those events occur. And certainly Noble Ape historically has embraced those events, and this analysis also embraces those events. So surety through here is very secondary, basically, to establishing these probabilities and maneuvering through this, this space. So I'm kind of getting, okay, so I'm getting the idea, but very, very practically speaking, what is the input that you're putting into Noble Ape look like? Well, the examples that I've provided uh, it's not quite like this currently, but you can give descriptions with the verbs as noted here, put them in space and time, and then see the probabilities accordingly from two different apes' perspectives with the view that they also change over time. So, in, for example, a murder trial circumstance where the events occurred 10 years ago, these notions, these ideas, these events as described are very vague and should have a probability probability associated with that. where This is where it gets very interesting, particularly in terms of legal analysis, because you actually start to discard a lot of surety, a lot of probabilistic surety at least, than, norm, than would normally be attributed in these circumstances. So by having an analytical means to actually approaching narrative, you can start to show that what appears to be completely contradictory things from different narrators, different agents, actually could be compatible based on... Uh, you know, loss of probability. Right. So, for example, as these events uh, occur in no blade, they degrade over time anyway. 
which means you can have circumstances where you can't currently do reverse analysis. That would be, that's ideally, you know, a five year, 10 year goal where you can actually start doing descriptive reverse analysis associated with events. But as it is currently by doing, as I say, you know, thousands of these simulations, you can start to see at the conclusion how these events would be stated as matters of fact, but how there are many different possibilities before these things occur. Wouldn't you, just as a side note to your comment about reverse analysis, wouldn't cellular automata give, it, give us a hint that such reverse analysis may not even be possible? Well, what do you end up with when you do probabilistic? I mean, it's a bit like a photographic image when you stand a good way away from it. You can tell certain effects visually associated with the image based on your distance from it. It's that kind of analysis. Mm. It, what you're dealing with here is almost um, uh, diffraction slits come to mind, but you know that kind of analysis where you can see patterns based on the distance, the temporal distance as well. So this is speculative, but I have been able to find these kind of things previously with no belay. But yeah, simulation will tell, unfortunately. So interesting. Any other questions? I would think one of the um, big issues in, in, in dealing with crime would be liars. <laughs> and that um, does um, Noble Ape show, uh, has that had, have you seen a, a deception emerge in your <laughs> simulations before? Yeah. And uh, I also know, I read a book about embezzlers, mm -hmm. and an embezzler, when they start off, they actually convince themselves that they're going to pay the money back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they usually can't, but they'll keep the illusion going. Even if they're in prison, they'll still think they're going to pay the money back. And yeah. I wonder if there's a self-deception as so, well as social deception. Yeah. So when I describe the notion of mutating stories, there are certain noble apes that are likely to mutate stories more. You might want to call those noble apes liars. And there are certain overlaps that will increase the kind of grandiose nature of certain stories. You might want to call, you know, those overlaps liars as well. So there are ways in which you can descriptively, you, you can, this is another point, through these random walks, the properties the ape internally can change as well. It's not just you start with a, well, a number of things within the scenario remain the same, but you can actually change the attributes of the apes, the agents, internally based on these kind of things through this as well. So part of the random walk is actually in changing, I wouldn't want to say the agent's motivation, but certainly changing characteristics that change the way that they adapt stories, perhaps for their own benefit, perhaps, as you say, sub subconsciously, for want of a better term. Um, but all these things are, are, are possible within Noble Ape and have been used historically. The liars one is very interesting. Because you can track if you, uh, the way Noble Ape does it is it has genetics attached to these various parameters. But yeah, you can construct Noble Apes that are the liars with the right kind of genetic effects. And what you find through simulating even, you know, hundreds of simulations is that you start to see certain characteristics which appear to be, you know, lying characteristics. So yes, Noble Ape has already had that historically. And it's very useful in this kind of stuff as well. Yeah, I would think another thing that that you could simulate would be, um, oh, con uh, I mean, not consciousness, but conscience. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm actually one of my beliefs is is that there's a certain percentage of people uh, of the human race that are psychopathic or mm -hmm. don't have mm -hmm. guilt about doing terrible things, and so they, of course, certainly uh, serve an evolutionary purpose when you have a you know. Uh, a, a, you know, a kingdom, et cetera. So yeah. I wonder if you get that kind uh, no, of thing, too, look, going to. Look, the Hitler ape yeah. is a phenomena that was identified pretty early on with Bob's work. Also, the notion of the kind of deity ape, either extremely good or extremely bad. So, yeah, Noble Ape has already historically had that, characterized through these examples, but this is over, you know, tens, if not hundreds of individual simulations of, of 
you know, potentially hundreds of simulation uh, years. So, yeah, we have seen this phenomenon already with noble ape, and obviously it lends itself very easily to this kind of stuff. Any other questions? If I understand, uh, you know, if, if this were very, very simple and there were just two statements, you could say, no, this conflicts. He said mm -hmm. it was here, they said it was there. This is much more complex. Well, even with two statements, potentially, there could be additional ways of explaining it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it'd be relatively simple, but mm -hmm. this is extremely complex. Certainly. And that's why you have random walks, so you do it millions of times mm -hmm. to find out. Now, here's the question. What? That something happens a lot, that something is very significantly out of whack with respect to certain kinds mm -hmm. of variables. What is it? I mean, where's the significance? How do you know what's the significant walk? Or well, significant when, I, when I came to this, it was the notion that what I've always liked with noble ape is emergence. So when you have a trial, you have a very simple description that's given a very easy walk through this data, but you don't have a notion of uh, emergence as you would see in simulation. So what I'm looking for here is actually not putting my hand heavily into this, but actually just through random walks, seeing what comes through that. But there are millions of there are millions of walks, certainly. And so, which ones are? What? How do you? What, what's the emergence? I, I guess I'm missing. Well, the emergence that. enables you to actually see things that you wouldn't normally see. So what you see through that is. Um, Areas which haven't been analysed, potentially contradictions, potentially things that occur far more probabilistically in simulation than have been accounted for. So, for example, a narrative, the, the suspected murderer's narrative, may appear very outlandish when the prosecution presents it. But you could show probabilistically that actually this was far more likely through random walk situations than what the prosecution is saying. But all you have in a trial typically is, you know, you may have potentially tens of sides associated with um, evidence being presented by individuals, but you have two very distinct, very selective walks given by the defence and the prosecution, and this provides a greater analysis, but also an ability for either of those sides to also explore the data set in greater detail. Any other questions? So, this is the last Conscious in the Cloud. I put together a slide just to explain my thinking associated with why it's the last one. Um, for folks listening, and this will be put out in podcast form, uh, there are five folks in the audience, <laughs> and there's me. Um, so Conscious in the Cloud came from two sources. It came from the Biota podcast, which I'd hosted for about six, maybe seven years, and also from the Grayfell meetings. The Biota podcasts were not a physical get-together. I did it over Skype. I did it with participants all over the world. Uh, the Greater meetings were a physical get-together, uh, and there was one uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, but the main one was actually in Boston. Biota, well, the Biota podcast kind of stopped because a lot of the participants went on to do other things. So Larry Yeager, for example, who was here um, for the first Conscious in the Cloud, um, is no longer actively developing artificial life. Almost all the participants in the Biota podcast no longer develop artificial life. Bruce Damer, who talked here, gave a quite a a rigorous defense of why he's no longer interested in artificial life. So there are a variety of folk who've gone off in their different directions, but they're no longer part of the biota community. However, as I noted initially, I've gone back to recording a podcast with Liz Swan, and my hope with that is that Liz comes to this from a very interesting perspective. She's actually taught undergraduate students uh, recently. <laughs> and um, I think she said this publicly. No, I'll, I'll say it out loud. Her teaching of undergraduate students is the reason that, well, one of the reasons that she left academia. And her experiences through that she found very challenging. 
I've seen it in a slightly different light doing the Biota podcast, and I, I'm pretty sure she has said that publicly, and I'll edit it out of this audio if I can't find it. Anyway, um, I have been contacted by a wide variety of folk in their late teens and early 20s that are interested in exploring these kind of simulations, but they come to it from a very different perspective than I came to it. And I came to it from a very different perspective than those 10 years prior to me came to it. But I'm very sympathetic to the undergraduate students that are currently coming to this or people who are completely independent hobbyists, because I think actually they'll be able to take a lot of these ideas, in particular linking them with the, you know, reactive programming and a wide variety of kind of cloud-based processing models um, that could make this very interesting. So I'm interested in reframing a discussion with Liz to make it more applicable to these folk. But I will say that we are going to have guests. And having guests on both formally and informally was really, in fact, BiotaLive was really a call-in session. Anyone could call in, anyone could participate. It evolved based on the participants. We never really had set topics. Sometimes I'd float some ideas. And I want to continue that through this thing with Liz. We don't have a name for it yet. I'm putting it on the podcast, the Bio podcast feed currently. I think I'm also putting it out in Stone Age. But it's a narrative which is really a restart on these previous narratives in order to bring in folk who are considerably dynamic and also interested uh, in learning in these fields. So I've done a did kind of a test maybe a year and a half ago with a group of early 20, maybe four or five early 20-year-old uh, guys who had all just finished uh, college and had started up a series of artificial life simulations, but their narrative was completely different to mine. So my role there was to introduce them actually to the historical legacy, but also introduce them to some of the problems that had already been solved. Because very few people kind of understand the breadth of this. The university, the MSU, is a good example of a university that teaches very little history associated with this stuff as well. So my interest really is taking a lot of history, a lot of the legacy, moving it forward to a new generation, and also encouraging folk to learn from the previous projects, pick up some of the previous projects. Larry Yeager's project, Polyworld, I don't think has students currently using it. I don't think it's, I mean, my view is that it's open source. Anyone could pick that up. But there are a number of existing simulations that are still uh, highly applicable. And, yeah, I'd like folks to kind of pick those up if possible. So this is going to continue in some form. It's just not going to continue in the physical event. And some of that is actually associated with Meetup changing its policies as well. And historically, I've not liked... Um, things that are constantly about upping a price as a group gets larger, but also the view that basically I should be charging you guys money for coming and listening to these things, which just doesn't seem applicable. So I'm moving very much back to a freely available audio, and my suspicion is actually the number of the folks, because you know there are 100-plus folks that signed up for this, a few, well, probably half of those people attended, but the majority of the people have listened to the audio. So doing this in audio format going forward I think makes a lot more sense. Um, and in terms of the infrastructure here, there are a group of six guys that are going to come and tidy up the chairs and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it's not really that uh, applicable. But please, for the folks who are here um, and for the folks listening in, my email address is tom at nobleape, dot -E com, uh, And please get in contact with me. Uh, any questions, any comments, any discussion associated with uh, folks who have attended previously? The physical meetup actually is kind of nice, right? Because there's, you know, you lose something when you're totally virtual, but there is obviously not a critical mass of people to kind of get in a single spot. So yeah. if we can reach more people, I think that is a good so, thing. And the time that we meet was asked for by a number of people to come down from um, the city. And I've tried to change various things to increase the folk. I'd, without having a kind of midpoint hosting point, basically it's had to be Netflix. So, yeah, there are certain things that when when there was a Greytham in Silicon Valley, they met in the Presidio, they met at um, the Internet Archive, 
They met at SRI International. They switched between those two locations to try and capture more people. I don't think they, never, they ever went in, um, north of the city. I think there was one other location that they might have used, but it was basically those two locations. Uh, anyway. Well, thank you all for, uh, for attending this. Thanks to the folks who are listening in as well via podcast. Um, it's been fun. Thank you. Thank you.